Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Gabrielle Matthew. I'm the host of New Books Network podcast for Fantasy and Adventure. And today we'll be talking with Aliette de Baudard. Aliette lives and works in Paris. She is the author of the critically acclaimed Obsidian and Blood trilogy of Aztec Noir fantasies, as well as numerous short stories, which have garnered her two Nebula Awards, a Locus Award, and two British Science Fiction Association Awards. Her space opera books include The Citadel of Weeping Pearls, a book set in the same universe as her Vietnamese science fiction, On a Red Station Drifting. Recent works include The House of Shattered Wings, which came out in 2015. That novel is set in a turn-of-the-century Paris devastated by a magical war. Today we'll be talking about the standalone sequel, The House of Binding Thorns, which is going to appear on the market on April 7th. So I have some questions. Elliot has graciously agreed to talk with us today. My first question is that I've noted you have a distinct writing style, which uses fresh and poetic metaphors. And in fact, I have a sample from the first book, The House of Shattered Wings. I'll read that out loud. The brown iris had disappeared. They were white through and through, the color and harshness of seagull feathers. I thought that was very apt and original, and I was wondering, how do you get your images? Do you carry a notebook with you to jot down things that you see? Uh, Well, I mean, I do carry a notebook with me that I jot down things in, but it's very seldom for metaphors. It's mostly for writing ideas or plot points. So um, I don't really know. Um, I really like writers like Ursula Le Guin or Patricia McKillip, who really do a lot with language and have this really poetic um, uh, cant to their sentences and their language. Um, And I, I mean, I try not to go over the line into purple, but I do like poetry a lot as well. So I guess that comes through. Well, you've got an original bent to it. So I'll move on to the next question. The world that you've created, Paris, is both recognizable and foreign. It's a wonderful setting for a novel, and you describe it well. Although with a decaying world you've created, I thought more of Venice than Paris, of our present-day Venice, with its wonderful patina of verdigris and decay. But Tell us a little bit about your real-life favorite places to visit in Paris. That's a really tricky question because, I mean, I've lived in Paris for almost all my life, so um, I don't really do the tourist thing anymore. I mean, the last time I went up the Eiffel Tower, I must have been a child, and I don't think I've ever gone back up. And a lot of the tourist areas I do with friends when they come to Paris, but other than that, no. Uh, there's places I hang out at. Um, I really like, uh, obviously, the 13th District, which is where we have a 
Chinatown and the entire Southeast Asian diaspora. So I do uh, go there a lot for having a meal with friends, for shopping, for supplies. And it's, uh, I mean, from a tourist point of view, it has very little interest because it's this really um, blocky mid-60s, mid-70s tower kind of architecture, which hasn't aged very well. But it's a really nice place for food. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of nice places I go to for food, actually. Um, and, uh, well, I like the Louvre for hanging out in, even though it's always overcrowded. So I try not to go at the tourist time. But, like, it's so huge and there are so many things in there. And they have even more things in the reserve. It's a fascinating area. That's true. It is very large, and it has a lot of cultural heritage of France, including items from French royalty, which is a very over-the-top type of thing that went on. It seems that the world of French royalty and the noble houses somewhat informed the world of the fallen. Do you think of the fallen as patterned after royal figures such as Louis XIV? who was content to live in luxury while people starved? Or do you think uh, they have a more cunning aspect to them than the average king? I I mean, I think there's always, I mean, I don't think it's specific to royalty to like have a an overclass that eats very well and that is often obscenely rich while other people on the streets starve. I mean, there's... It's still happening today and it's still happening in France or in the West today. So, um, but specifically, actually, the world of the fallen and of Paris was modeled after the 19th century world of Paris. And the 19th century is really this fascinating uh, period in the history of France because it was a very tumultuous period. You had uh, the French Revolution was in 1689. And so, at the turn of the ninth, at the turn of the uh, the eighteenth century, um, you had France still recovering from the revolution, going through a number of social upheavals under Napoleon. Then uh, Napoleon got dethroned, and you get um, well, you get the, the the restored monarchy, which plays this kind of really delicate game of trying to conciliate the old nobility, the people who were nobles before the fall of the Ancien Régime, the kings, and the people who were new nobility who had been raised uh, to their present status by Napoleon and who still had their mm-hmm. titles. And it's, it's a really fascinating period. So you have on the one hand this going on in the salon and in this uh, very high society where people uh, have this great food and all those uh, what we call the hotel particulier, which are the um, the private mansions of the rich in Paris. You have all sorts of really very pretty buildings going up, and at the same time, you have uh, people who are very much not winning the social um, well game is probably not the right word, but who. Um, live hand to mouth, who are workers in factories, who fall sick, who have very unstable situations, who very often don't have enough money to go from more than week to week. And it's it's a really, really stark in contrast, I've always thought. So I was trying with a 
the House of Binding Thorns to get us some of that juxtaposed inequality, except that the defining feature wasn't going to be if you were rich or not, but if you had magic or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. My favorite evil fallen character is Asmodeus, and he reminds me a little bit of Ferdinand in Orphan Black. Ferdinand in the TV show Orphan Black is a suave killer who likes to make frittatas. Do you know what Ferdinand looks like? Um, as it happens, I've just seen him because <laughs> we've been watching Orphan Black and we just hit the part of the show where he shows up. So, yeah, I do. Um, he definitely has the glasses part down, right? Um, the inspiration for Asmodeus was actually coming from uh, manga and anime rather than from TV shows. Um, he's a sort of composite of a lot of characters, but the two main ones that I can think of are Greed from Fullmetal Alchemist. Uh, Greed is... Um, He's a supernatural being called a homunculus who um, basically uh, gets summoned into a human body. And mm-hmm. his defining characteristic is that he likes what he has and he likes to accumulate things and he likes to accumulate people as well. Um, except that he's also um, somewhat sympathetic because he's, he doesn't consider the things that he accumulates thing, the people that he accumulates things, sorry, he cares about their well-being. He wants to see them happy, and he's terribly, terribly upset when somebody tries to harm them or steal them, or steal them away from him. And I found that a fascinating idea. Uh, and the other, char- the other character that I really well like is again maybe not the right word, but uh, is um, Sebastian from uh, Black Butler. Uh, Sebastian is a demon who's summoned uh, again into a human body uh, by a, by a kid, Ciel phantom hive and who basically agrees to serve Ciel for a period of time and then he gets Ciel's soul and he's this very suave and sarcastic person who's got a completely different sense of morality uh, which mostly includes well I have to kill people that doesn't really matter but I will do anything for my master and I was really also intrigued by this idea that you know some people had the code that was that you could call moral if it wasn't so obviously horrible it's an internal moral code. So I would suggest that we can admire characters like Asmodeus, even as they repel and horrify us. Um, well, I mean, for me, the word is not admiration so much as fascination. I was having this conversation with Kate Elliott, who read the first draft of House of Binding Thorns, and who pointed out that he was a monster, but a really fascinating monster, and that was part of the appeal. Uh, I tend to agree. I mean, I... I don't know if admire would sort of imply that I approve of what he's doing for me, uh, which I really don't. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you underst- I understand where he's coming from. And there's this sort of yeah terrible fascination with what the hell is he going to think of next? There are clear lines to his decision-making. I see what you mean. Another thing that I'm curious about with the fallen is the fluid gender. Sometimes fallen in the shapes of women are involved with women. Sometimes they're with men. Uh, Asmodeus takes a male consort, which didn't seem to comment, didn't seem to arouse any comment on anyone's part. Uh, Do the Fallen have fluid gender? Not, not in the sense where, uh, I mean, not in the sense that we use fluid gender today. Uh, my idea with the fallen was that, uh, well, they're fallen angels, so of course angels in the heavens 
don't actually have a gender or mm-hmm. anything that would approximate that. However, when they come down to earth, they acquire human shape and um, gender was part of, um, I guess, an attempt to conform to what is expected of them. But at the same time, they're so powerful that they don't really have to give a damn about what people think. Um, I have yet to write a completely gender fluidful and I would like to do that, but it would be different. Mm-hmm. As it stands right now, they definitely seem to have their preferences in the gender of the lovers they take. Mm. Yes. Well, moving on, uh, the Vietnamese descendants were called Anamite, mostly in your book. They have their own areas of the city where they struggle away from the houses of the fallen. I know you mentioned before there are certain neighborhoods of Paris that you like to go to uh, for the food and uh, their Asian areas. I guess I'd like to hear a little bit about your own upbringing in Paris and whether you ever felt marginalized no. Well, um, I went to a Catholic school in the 17th district where, um, let me put it that way, the next most exotic person was a white Jewish boy who probably didn't have it very funny either. But um, I got comments that range from, where do you come from? Where do you really come from? Where do your parents come from? to uh, you're a dirty chink and you're not ever going to amount to anything. So um, (laughs) that was interesting. Yes. Uh, But growing up, I was certainly very much aware that there was a people who were from France and people who were not from France. And it didn't seem to really matter that I was, I had spent 99.9% of my life in France. I was just going to walk into a room and people would be, oh, you're not French. Mm-hmm. And it was somehow written all over my face. And I was like, right, thank you. Um, which is, I mean, it's, I mean, we were comparing that with Zen Cho, and it's actually a very, she had a very different experience because she grew up in Malaysia where she was uh, in a, well, in a different situation. But uh, it certainly uh, gives me a very weird kind of dissociation. And it's, but it also, the interesting thing that it gives me, I think, is that, um, I was also very much aware that um, you did some things in France when you did them the French way, and then you did other things when I was with my maternal family. So eating rice at every meal was um, something that you did when you were with the Vietnamese. And in fact, I was a bit horrified to learn that actual French people boiled their rice. I was like, okay, (laughs) this is not going to turn out good, but because it's a different sort of rice, Mm -hmm. don't cook it the same way. Uh, and you put butter in it, which you would never do in Vietnam because dairy, massive dairy intolerances. In uh, I think it's, I mean, I obviously don't want to say that my entire background has been geared towards writing fantasy or anything, but I think it's certainly been interesting to like have this really deep understanding that different cultures have different ways of looking at the world and different things that they do, because one of the things that I've seen very often um in genre and especially out of genre is that when you have different cultures, they all feel the same because the people who write them don't actually stop to think that not everyone does the little things the same way. So um, in Vietnam, if you have a meal, um, the eldest person orders for everyone and then people share the dishes. 
which is not what happens when you go to a Western restaurant. By and large, people tend to order a single dish for themselves and there's very little sharing. Mm-hmm. Uh, try that in Vietnam and my grandmother will kill you. Um, and there's the big things as well, which is I was always taught that you should try to be measured in what you do and that you have to try to balance in all things. And uh, in general, it's the, I think it's the, it's the golden mean. I don't know what the term is for it in English. But anyway, it's a very Confucian idea that you shouldn't be too much of a thing, whereas the the equivalent Western tends, idea tends to be more towards the you should be, for instance, all love if you're uh, if we're talking about Catholic ideals. So it's and that in turn informs the way that people see the world. So it's if you don't get that right both the little and the big things, then all your different cultures are just going to feel as though they just put on little costumes for the time of the novel, but they're not going to reflect what really happens when you have different uh, people from different backgrounds interacting. I know exactly what you mean. Uh, about a month ago, I was finishing up a science fiction novel, which was actually quite entertaining. It was written by a male author, and he had a female protagonist, and I like the fact that he had a strong female, but there was absolutely nothing except her name to suggest that she was female. I wanted to, I wanted to say, hey, nice try, but uh, it's not a very well-rounded portrayal. Yes, my husband calls them somewhat crudely men with boobs. Oh, <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and even then... <laughs> Well, speaking about cooking, I know that you sometimes post about cooking on social media, too. And uh, I especially like the scene in your novel where someone was rewarded by a bottle of diluted fish sauce. It was a touching. It was a reminder of the culture that he'd left behind. And uh, just wondered, you must like to cook and you must like to eat, it sounds like. Yeah, um, I've always liked to eat, and my family, both sides of the family growing up, always put a great insistence on how important food was. And, you know, there's there's food as in preparing the food, and then there's food as in consuming the food with people, uh, you know, relatives and friends, which, again, is a slightly different experience. I wasn't very good on the preparing the food until I hit about 24, 24, 25, and I realized that... Um, my husband was a decent cook, but he certainly wasn't going to be the one who was going to cook the Vietnamese dishes that my mum cooked for me when I was little. So I was like, oh, right, I might need to do something about that. So I tried to get taught by my grandmother and my mum, which is a very frustrating experience to be doing when you're 25, because their entire cooking um, advice was, you put a little of this and a little of that. And I was like, but how do you know if the dipping sauce is mixed just right? And they're like, well, you just look at it. That's right. Um, if you've got 30 years experience, yes, grandma. Me, no. <laughs> We're going to need something else. <laughs> and you're a chemist, so you are inclined to use exact proportions, I would think. Oh, I'm not a chemist. No, I'm not a chemist. I'm a computer engineer. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. I must have gotten mixed up seeing something about you working in a lab. Oh, yeah. No, I've, I may have worked in a lab, but it was a computer lab. So it was mostly lots of really big machines doing computations, but I know I've never actually, my husband worked in the lab, but I've never done that. 
Well, another element of Asian culture is five elements theory. I'm a little bit familiar with that myself. I happen to have a master's in traditional Chinese medicine, and it was nice to see it alluded to in a book. It seems to inform the magic of your character, Philippe. And I wondered how you had become interested in a theory and wanted to know some of your ideas about how it becomes available as magic. Well, I mean, I mean, we're talking about food, and uh, there's a lot of five element theory in food as well. Like, um, there's a line. Well, it, there's a correspondence between um, salty, sour, sweet, hot, and I always forgot the last one, bitter uh, foods and different elements, and you are supposed to mix them to achieve different effects that range from mildly medicinal to completely, um, you know, to the stuff that might help a little with whatever ailments you've got to actual medicine, uh, proper drugs that you're supposed to uh, go to the apothecary for. Um, I, um, I mean, I just, it seemed pretty natural to me that if I was going to have a character like Philippe, who's uh, an, ex, uh, an ex-immortal, immortal in the sense, in the Taoist sense, uh, that he was going to base his worldview on uh, Amin Yong, which is the, um, the Vietnamese equivalent of Yin and Yang, uh, and on the, the five elements uh, theory, and that therefore the magic itself was going to be based on that. Uh, as it happens, at the time I was actually uh, playing, uh, having a, a role-playing game uh, with a couple of friends, and I was playing a Chinese character who was doing magic with the five elements. So that also helped a little with um, thinking of what you could do with a system like that. I didn't actually reuse the system from the role-playing game because it was designed to make magic extremely difficult to cast, and that's not what I wanted for his character. Mm-hmm. Um, I made magic extremely difficult to cast for him, Mostly because he never had what he needed at hand, not because he didn't have the skills. Um, and it was, I mean, also the, the elements and the way that they, um, 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 I wanted to have a contrast between the fallen, whose magic comes from them, from their bodies, and is then passed on to other people and used by them, uh, to people who had drew their magic from the land, from outside of them. So you have, you have actually a pretty clear contrast between, um, people like Philippe who are mortal, but who rise to be immortals and they rise through knowledge. And you have the fallen who are ageless, possibly mortal. Who knows? Uh, no one's actually found the fallen who died of old age and who gain their powers because they lose their memories. Speaking of the fallen, there was one sentence, and it said that they were on earth to redeem themselves. But that sentence uh, was said by a priest who was off the scene, and it was unclear how much truth there was in that. Are the fallen here to redeem themselves? Because they don't seem to be doing a very good job of it. Well, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. I mean, one of the things I also wanted to do was... um, I don't happen to think that because you have fallen angel on earth that would necessarily uh, obliviate the need for faith and the existence of an organized religion. And one of the ways in which I avoided that problem uh, was to make them amnesiacs. So um, 
yeah, the fallen, then she's not going to be able to tell you much about the existence of God or anything. It's implied and it's what's told, but it's not like they were giving an operating manual. So um, each of them reacts in a very different way. Um, I mean, it's a very peculiar knowledge to be told that you fell from the grace of God and that you might or might not be able to redeem yourself. Um, I guess it's to some extent what humans um, also uh, get told. But with the fallen, it takes on a particular edge. Um, And it's, I mean, it's not so much that most of them aren't out to redeem themselves as um, the fact that... I guess that personally, I think that I'm extremely skeptical of people who remain good after having immense power. I just (laughs) think that most of them would turn out to be extremely selfish and extremely interested in their own petty things rather than actually using them for good. I'm not saying there wouldn't be fallen who use their powers for good. I think that they can be totally, but I think most of them would be like humans, really, (laughs) which is not terribly good at it. Power is a corrupting influence because once you have it, obviously... You want to keep in power, even if your stated goal is just to protect those who are now following you. And that, of course, allows you to do some cruel and dangerous things in the name of the house, which is what happens in the novels. And there is torture in the novels, too. Now, you had some good torture scenes, and thank you for not being too graphic, just graphic enough in those torture scenes. But one thing that struck me, you're a mother of two children yourself, and this is probably the first novel I've read where a woman being in labor and being under extreme duress actually read like a torture scene itself. Would you like to comment on that? Well, I'm glad that worked out, uh, because that was exactly the intention. Um, I... I mean, I've always been, I don't know if mildly amused is the term, mildly irritated, I guess, that um, there's a lot of parts of the human experience that, especially in media, but sometimes fiction, completely shy away from. Uh, in particular, most of us are more likely to give birth than to be tortured. Uh, and we're also most more, I mean, in the 19th century, you were certainly more likely to die of childbirth than to, um, say, die in wars or anything like that. Well, there's obviously a lot of like reasons, notably that the medicine was extremely poor and the hygiene was also extremely poor. But um, I kind of felt like that wasn't fair, that there was never any mothers around or any pregnant women, and that when there were pregnant women, birth scenes seemed to be um, eluded, even while there were really graphic torture scenes. It was like, Hey, come on, I gave birth. That was unpleasant enough. Um, I'm pretty sure I could do a scene where that was that really comes across. So that's that's where we got to. And um, it actually turned out to be really, really difficult to have a birth scene where the main character, having the main characters in a lot of pain was not a problem because like birth tends to be painful. And before epidural, it was uh, even more painful. Uh, but um, I wanted complications for the birth and it was really hard to come up with complications that wouldn't end with the main character dead at the end of the scene, given the state of the medicine. Because it turns out that when you have no antibiotics and very rudimentary medicine, 
well, you pretty much have to let nature take its course, and it's not very pretty if something does go wrong. I, I researched a lot about postpartum hemorrhages, for instance, and I was like, oh, well, if this happens, she's dead. Going on to water, I did notice that in the Aztec World Series, there was a water world, and there's one here as well. So it seems to be a recurring motif in your novels. I just wondered, are you a water sign, astrologically? In the Western Zodiac, I literally have no idea. Uh, in the Vietnamese Zodiac, yes. I'm a, water, I'm a water dog, a young water dog. I think, though, that it's more a coincidence, well... I think it's more coincidence than anything else, but of course I can't be sure. But uh, there was a water world in the Aztec books because, uh, well, most of the Aztec stuff was happening on an island. So it kind of really made no sense not to have a water world and not to have a water god that would have been fairly important. And in this one, the reason there's a water world is because I wanted to reuse the Vietnamese, the Rong, the Vietnamese dragons of Mm -hmm. my childhood. And they tend to be water creatures. So it was either the sea, which is kind of really far away from Paris, yes, or the Seine, which happens to be bang in the middle of the city. But of course, that could just be latent fascination with water, just trying to find a way to express itself. <laughs> it could be. Only you would know. Well, we've come close to the end of our program, so I would just like to ask you to say a couple of words about your next project. Uh, okay. Uh, well, at the moment, I'm working on a on a, a novella for um, um, that's set in my Suya universe, so in the Vietnamese Galactic uh, Empire, and that's uh, basically around a an experimental um, maintenance program for a space station with a multi-character cast, and I'm trying to untangle the threads of that to be enough to be presentable. So we'll see how that goes. And then I've got a lot of short fiction that I'm scheduled to write that I'm also working on. Well, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Okay, goodbye. 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 